Amen. Please be seated. And take out your copy of God's Word. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6. We're going to read just the last two verses of 6 and then the first 10 verses of chapter 7. If you're using the Bible in your row, it's on page 1004. Now, this is a hard passage. Hopefully, you read it in advance, and if you never, uh, if you want to do that, you can always look in the, the email that we send out every Thursday. You get the text, but also, we're not very creative around here, so you're just going to be reading the next passage after what I preach on today for next week, all right? Um, it's a hard passage, so let's go before God and seek the help of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, all Scripture is given by your inspiration, and all Scripture is profitable. So we pray, especially today, as we study a New Testament passage about a relatively obscure Old Testament figure, that you would open our eyes to see Jesus and to understand what we were being, what, what we're being taught about Jesus as we're being taught about Melchizedek. And then we pray, O oh God, that you would apply this truth to our hearts so that we would understand and believe and have hope and peace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hebrews chapter 6, starting at verse 19 through chapter 7, verse 10. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything, he is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He's without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It's beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. One of the great things about going verse by verse through books of the Bible as we do here at First Scots, both in the morning and in the evening, is that we don't miss anything. We, we, we end up reading every verse, moving slowly and methodically and studying them together. But the downside of it is that at least as a pastor, I don't get to skip anything. 
And as I thought about this passage, I wondered, you know, if I just go to chapter 8, I wonder if they'll notice. And it's not that the the passage is is particularly offensive or anything like that. It's simply that when we read a passage like this, our minds go in a million different directions, and a lot of times we want to have answers that God didn't intend to give us. You know, if God intended to answer our every question about Melchizedek, he would have given us the answers to our every question about Melchizedek. And so oftentimes, people read these passages about Melchizedek and their imaginations go wild. In fact, it's been that way for 4,000 years. For 4,000 years, this character Melchizedek has been a, a topic of imagination and fascination for students of the Scriptures. He, he's captivated the minds and the imaginations of many, and so commentators and theologians and, and laymen alike spill much ink debating who he is. Is he a mere man? Was he an angel? Or is he a, a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus? There's been an incredible amount of attention paid to that. Now, we could spend all day looking at that. But I suppose if we did, the author of Hebrews would say, ah, stop it. Because that's missing the point. You see, the point here is for us not to understand everything about Melchizedek, but for Melchizedek to point us to the Lord Jesus. That's the point of this passage. And I want to give us a little bit of context here. Go back to chapter 5 for a moment. This argument's actually been building for a while, and then there was sort of an excursus away from it, and now we're returning to it. So if you're in chapter 5, looking at verse 6, the author of Hebrews references Psalm 110, verse 4. You're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, that's the first time Melchizedek's name has been mentioned in Scripture for about a thousand years. But he says, you're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then, just a few verses later in verse 10, he says that Christ was designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. There is something that this author is excited to show the people about the connection between Melchizedek and Jesus. It's like he can't wait. But he does wait, and, and, and you need to see why. Looking back at chapter 5, verse 11, he says, you know, about this, we have a lot to say. About this Melchizedek-Jesus relationship, there's a lot to say, and it's hard to explain. But it's interesting, he, he doesn't say it's hard to explain because the topic's just really heady and, and some of you aren't going to get it. He's saying it's hard to explain because some of you become dull of hearing, And when he says dull of hearing, he doesn't mean that they've become hearing impaired. He's not talking about any physiological issue. It means they're lazy hearers. They're complacent as the word of God is read and preached. And so he goes on, and that's what he's been doing from chapter 5, verse 11, up till where we pick up today. He's saying, you know, you're acting like a bunch of spiritual toddlers, you're, you're acting like spiritual toddlers. You just don't get it. And so sometimes you can talk to a, a toddler, but you have to talk to him in baby talk, don't you? Or the illustration that he uses here is he says, you know, you need milk. You're ready for meat, but you get choked on it. And so I've got to just keep feeding you 
milk. And we use the image of, imagine walking into this church and seeing all these lovely mature people. And the word gets preached and they just start pulling out sippy cups and drinking off of their sippy cups for the next hour. It would be absurd to see, but that's exactly what Hebrews is saying happens. You've been a Christian long enough, you should be mature enough to handle all this talk about Melchizedek and Jesus. But he said, you know, you're going to have to grow up if you want to do that. Now, one of the things that happens as a child grows up, it's one of the signs of maturity in a child, is if you point and say, look over there, a young child's actually going to look at your finger. And they're going to miss the point completely. But as they get older, as they grow in maturity and understanding, you say, look over there, they're going to look over there. And Hebrews is saying to us, you know, if you're growing to maturity, you're not going to miss the point. You see, Melchizedek's not the point. Melchizedek points to Jesus, and that is the point. And so as we come to Melchizedek today, and you have all these questions about who he was, if you get hung up on that, you're going to miss the point. The point of Melchizedek is to point to the glory of Jesus. And that's what we're going to do today. That's why he stopped back in verse 5, I mean in chapter 5, and said, hey, it's time to grow up. And I trust that we've heard that message, and we understand that as well, that the point of the passage isn't Melchizedek, it's the Lord Jesus. Now, it's not to say that Melchizedek isn't a fascinating character. He absolutely is. There's only one historical account. It was written around 2000 BC in the book of Genesis, and then David talked about him in Psalm 110. That was around 1000 BC, and then Hebrews was written a thousand years later, and there's eight mentions of him in Hebrews. It's astonishing that Melchizedek plays such a huge role in Hebrews when he really paid, played such a small role in Genesis. But there's some biblical logic to it. Here's the logic behind what he's doing here. He wants to show us that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. And Christ is greater even than Melchizedek. That's the point. And that's why I say you can read this passage and get hung up on who Melchizedek is and, and how he didn't have father or mother or beginning or end of days, and you can get all of that and completely miss the point. The point of this passage is that Jesus is better than anyone or anything else. And so I want to look at that under three headings. First, Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. Second, the new covenant is greater than the old covenant. And then third, Jesus is greater than anything else. So that's where we're going to go. Those are listed in your bulletin if you're following along. But first, I, I want you to see Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. And that would have been a hard statement for a Jewish uh, follower to hear. Because nobody was greater than Abraham. He was the father of the Jews. He was the heir of the promise. In the Jewish mind, all covenant blessings came through Abraham. But if you look at Genesis 14, you realize that's not totally a right understanding. Abraham was not the greatest. What's happened, let me remind you of Genesis 14 Abraham and his nephew have both settled in Canaan, in the land of promise. But they're not the only ones there. There's other tribes there. There are other Canaanite tribes there. And each of those tribes had kings, and sometimes those kings would go to war with each other. 
Well, one of the kings of Canaan had come in and attacked several other kings of Canaan, and in the process, Abraham's nephew Lot and his family were captured and taken off as captives. So Abraham gathers troops and pursues this king and defeats him along the way, and he recaptures Lot, and he gathers all these spoils of victory. And on the way back to where their camp was, Abraham meets this character, Melchizedek, whom we're told in Genesis 14, he's the king of Salem. But as we look at their interaction, what we see is that the great Abraham, the father of the Jewish faith, views Melchizedek as greater than he was, as greater than himself. How do we see that? Well, first, Abraham tithed to Melchizedek. He gave a tenth of the spoils of war to Melchizedek. You know, in the Old Testament code, you brought your tithes to the priest. And some of it was used, that money was used to operate the worship of Israel. Some of it was used for the upkeep of the house of God. And some of it um, supported the priests and their families. And it's much like in the church today. Well, that was the code that the Levites would take up the tithes. The Levites were from Abraham's great, the tribe of Abraham's great-grandson Levi. But we're told here in verse 6, the man who does not have his descent from Levi received tithes from Abraham. He wasn't a Levite. So why did Abraham tithe to him? Because Melchizedek was superior to Abraham. Now, we see that also in the fact that Melchizedek blesses Abraham. And that's incredible to think of because God repeatedly tells Abraham that through him, the nations of the earth will be blessed. So you look at Genesis 12, 3. Through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Abraham was what we could call the supreme blesser. But then he meets Melchizedek, and Melchizedek blesses Abraham. And look at Hebrews 7, verse 7, how it explains that. It's beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. It's saying Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. Now, this is where we have to be careful not to get distracted. See, when we think of Melchizedek's greatness, it's not actually about Melchizedek himself. You know, we have no reason to believe that Melchizedek was anything more than a a godly mere man. Look at verse 3. He resembled the Son of God. It doesn't say he was the Son of God. It means he was like the Son of God. Resemblance doesn't mean he was synonymous with it. So why was Melchizedek superior to Abraham? Because God had called Melchizedek to a unique role. We know that he was a king. His name, Melchizedek, means king of righteousness. And then it says his title was he was king of Salem. Now, Salem means peace, but it's also short for Jerusalem. So he was likely the king of the place that Jerusalem would one day be. Now, that's really important. Hebrews doesn't get into this. It's not, Hebrews is not so concerned about the kingship of Christ as the priesthood of Christ. But if Melchizedek was the king of Jerusalem before David was, that's a subtle way of showing us that Melchizedek was greater than David as well. 
But Melchizedek wasn't just a king, he was also a priest. And that's how David described him. You're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So he was a king and a priest. That was a duty that, that Old Testament kings and priests couldn't do together. In fact, Saul one time got tired of waiting for Samuel to come and, and present the offering, and so he presented it himself, and he got in great trouble for it because kings and priests had divided offices. You didn't find a priest king in the Old Testament like we see here in Melchizedek. He was both. And that's what makes him greater than Abraham. He was a different kind of king. He was a different kind of priest than anything else we see in the Old Testament. And we need to do some thinking here. We have to pay attention. We've got to set aside our milk and get ready for the filet mignon. We've got to get ready to chew some meat. Remember that in the Old Testament, priests came through the tribe, through the line of Levi, Abraham's great-grandson. That was the priestly order of the Old Testament. Only the Levites served as priests. But Melchizedek's of a totally different order, a superior order to that of the Old Testament priesthood. And so in saying Melchizedek is superior to Abraham, what the passage is actually saying, it's making the larger point that the new covenant is superior to the old covenant. Uh, that Melchizedek, who we're going to see, foreshadows and points to the Lord Jesus. He, being superior to Abraham, shows us that the new covenant is superior to the old covenant. That's what that mysterious line about Melchizedek means in verse 3. It says he's without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning nor uh, beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. This is what's gathered the, the, the imaginations of people through the years. How could Melchizedek not have a father or mother, and how could he not have a beginning or end of days? Now, I hate to tell you the answer is probably not as exciting as you think. When it says he has no father or mother or genealogy, it's simply telling us he wasn't of the, the Levitical line. How did you know somebody was entitled to a, a position of priesthood in the Levitical line? You looked at their genealogy. Now, you had a lot of bad priests in the Levitical line, but they were entitled to the position if they were of the, of, of, of the genealogical lineage. But Melchizedek wasn't of the line of Levi, and so his priesthood must not have been based on genealogy. And then when it says he doesn't have beginning or end of days, it's talking about how Old Testament priests were ordained at about age 30 and they could serve till they were about 50. They had a very limited time where they would, could serve and either they would retire or if they died before age 50, then, then they would cease to be priests. They stopped being priests at a certain point. But Melchizedek's different. He didn't retire from being a priest. It was a different kind of priesthood. So why does all that matter? Why does it matter what, what line Melchizedek's from? Why does it matter how long he served? Because it's pointing to this. If the old covenant system came through Abraham's offspring and Melchizedek is superior 
to Abraham, there must be something better out there than just the old covenant and its acts of worship and its priesthood. Look at verses 9 and 10. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, that's his job, he collects the tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. This is talking about covenant lineage. Just as when Adam was born, we were in Adam. When Adam sinned, we sinned in him. When Abraham gave a tithe to Melchizedek, Levi was in him. Therefore, Melchizedek and what he represents, what he points to, is greater than the entire Old Covenant system. What did Melchizedek point to? We're going to come back to this in just a minute, but he pointed to the gracious new covenant that Christ would bring. And we'll see that more next week. But I want you to see a couple ways the author makes this point. Uh, or excuse me, a couple reasons the author makes this point. Why is he telling them that Jesus, uh, that, that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham? Well, first, there were probably accusations in the Jewish world and even maybe among the, the Hebrew church that Jesus couldn't be a high priest because he wasn't a Levite. You know that, that Jesus was from the line of Judah. And so how could he have been a priest? Well, because he's of a greater line, the line of Melchizedek. And so anybody that would have been complaining about Jesus, how Jesus could be the great high priest, he says, ah, you got to understand, he's a higher line than those old covenant priests served in. But there's another reason that he's going over all this, and it goes back to the purpose behind Hebrews. See, Hebrews is written to a lot of Jewish believers that have left the synagogue to follow Christ. And some of them have said, you know, I'm not sure it's worth it. I'm not sure it's worth all that I've given up. And so they're starting to wander away. They're starting to leave Jesus to go back to the old covenant. And the author wants to say to them, The new covenant, what Jesus came to bring, is better than the entire Old Testament. It's it's better than everything you found there because all of that existed to point to Christ. It was not the point. It pointed to him. And so what he's saying here to these believers who are so tempted to wander is stick to Jesus because he's better than anything else. So we've seen that. We've seen Melchizedek's greater than Abraham. We've seen the new covenant is greater than the old covenant. But now the big point, this is the grand finale of this passage. Jesus is greater than anything and everything else. As the writer makes this prolonged case for the superiority of Melchizedek, what he's saying is Melchizedek exists to point to Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus is even greater than than Melchizedek. Let me show you that in a couple of ways. Remember what verse 2 tells us. Melchizedek's name meant king of righteousness, and his title, as we said, was king of Salem or king of peace. It's significant that those two ideas are connected in Melchizedek because the way to peace with God is through righteousness. Unrighteous people cannot have peace with God. We cannot produce it because unrighteousness is war against God. That's what sin is. It's picking a fight with God. So in Melchizedek, we see this man who is the king of righteousness and the king of peace. 
But you know, as great as Melchizedek was, he could not bring righteousness to men to make peace with God. If he could, the Bible would have ended in Genesis 14. But we have all the other 65 books of the Bible telling us how it was that God did make peace through righteousness, and it was through the Lord Jesus, the true king who came to bring righteousness so that we could have peace with God. The Lord Jesus is the king of righteousness. That's what 1 John 2, 1 calls him. It says Jesus is, uh, he calls him Jesus Christ, the righteous. As fully God and fully man, Jesus is the righteousness of God incarnate. But he's also the giver of righteousness. He didn't come merely to show us how to be righteous. He came to to give us righteousness. I want you to look in the scriptures with me for a moment. Let's go back to Romans 1. This is the great uh, verse, starting in verse 16. It's the passage that led Martin Luther into the Protestant Reformation just over 500 years ago. Uh, Romans 1, 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. In Luther's day, it was believed that the way to salvation was to attain righteousness, enough righteousness to make you presentable before God. But if you keep reading, look at verse 17. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. It's talking about a kind of righteousness that comes from outside of ourselves. Martin Luther called it alien righteousness. It comes to us not through the labors of our own hands, but it comes to us as a gift from Christ received by faith. Look with me two chapters later, Romans 3. Starting at verse 21. Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So Jesus came to give righteousness. Even Melchizedek couldn't do that. He came to bring the righteousness that leads to peace with God. It is the only way to peace with God, is to have the righteousness of Christ. How do we receive it? By faith alone. A lot of times people will ask me, the theological question, how were Old Testament saints saved? Because there's a mindset in our culture today that, that the Old Testament was all about law and New Testament was all about grace. And so Old Testament saints, they must have been saved by the law. You know, do you think that if men could be saved by their own works of the law that God would have crucified his own son? Of course not. Nobody can be saved by the works of the law. So how were Old Testament saints saved? How was Abraham saved? The same way you and I are, by looking 
to Christ. We look back to Christ. They looked forward to Christ. But the Bible teaches, whether you're in Genesis or Revelation, there is only one name in heaven under which men must be saved, and it is through Jesus. I want you to see this, how Abraham was saved. Look back at Genesis 15 for a moment. So this is just after Abraham has met Melchizedek. It's before the birth of Isaac. God has made Abraham some pretty incredible promises. Promises that at times were hard to believe. But look at Genesis 15, verse 6. And he, speaking of Abraham, he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham had faith, and God gifted him the righteousness of Christ. See, that's what Christ came to do. Not simply to be righteous, but to give us his righteousness so that those who by faith receive him, those who trust in the Lord Jesus, when God looks upon you, he sees the righteousness of Christ. Your sins were laid upon Jesus' shoulders and his righteousness was wrapped around you like a robe. So he's the giver of righteousness. He alone can do that. And that's really important because right now, if you want to look really magnanimous and really civilized in our culture, you say something like this. You know, every religion is the same. All rivers lead to the, all streams lead to the same river. All all trails lead to the same mountaintop. Do you realize how blasphemous that statement is? The idea that anything or anyone else can give us the righteousness we need in order to have peace with God? See, Jesus is utterly unique among all the people and all the religions of the world. He alone can make righteous. Melchizedek couldn't do that. Abraham couldn't do that. The Greek gods couldn't do that. Buddha couldn't do that. Allah couldn't do that. Only Jesus is the king of righteousness who can make peace between God and men. And it's through that gift of righteousness from Christ received by faith alone that we can have peace with God. I know this congregation pretty well. I know our strengths and I know our weaknesses, but I suppose that of the entire congregation, there's not one person in this room who came in thinking today, you know, I might depart from Jesus and go back to the old covenant. I might go back to the temple and the sacrifices and all those different things. I don't think there's one person in this room that's struggling with that, like the Hebrew church was. And if for no other reason that if you go back to the old covenant, you don't get bacon anymore. But I wonder if we really get the point. Yeah, we may not be struggling with departing from Jesus, going back to the old covenant, but do we really get the point that Jesus is better than anything else? Do we get that? What might some of the things be that may be a temptation for the men, women, and children of this room to make us wonder if it's really worth all that we've given up to follow Christ. That's what the Hebrew church was wondering. Is it really worth it? There there are things in here that tug on our hearts the same way 
that they tugged on the hearts of the Jewish church? What might it be in here? I think part of it's our reputation in the world. I think there are many of us who, who, who don't want to look like a sore thumb in the world. We don't want to stand out. We want to look like the world. But the problem is that if we follow Christ, we're going to be funny looking. And Christians have tried so hard to make Christianity socially acceptable. And so whether it's the seeker-sensitive movement that tries to make the church look just like the world and ends up there being nothing special in the church anymore at all, or the social justice movement that tries to win the approval of the world, what ends up happening when Christians try to seek the approval of the world is the world ends up laughing at it. And it may be done under the guise of reaching the lost, but I think so often it's done in order to not feel weird. Maybe if we compromise here and here and here, maybe if we don't act like Christians, the world won't persecute us. The world won't think we're so strange. Do you know what it always leads to when we try to win the approval of the world? A lukewarm pseudo-Christianity that both the world and God find utterly ridiculous. That's what it produces when Christians look like the world. If you want to be a cool and socially accepted Christian, you're going to have to do so at the expense of discipleship. Is, is that a tug on the hearts of this church to not look strange, to not look bigoted? I bet it is. Could it be financial security? I fear for some who are so concerned with their careers that they seem to think that following the Lord Jesus will only get in the way. And so they don't mind a, a loose association on Sundays. But discipleship and fellowship and evangelism and service to the church all seem to get in the way right now. Maybe when I retire, I'll get around to those things. Well, from what I can tell you, I have not retired yet. But I can tell you retirement is as much of a snare You've worked hard all your life. You've done what others wanted. Now that you're retired, you say, I want to set my schedule. I want to live my life of leisure. I want to do the things I've never been able to do. You know, that's not inherently a bad thing, but the top of your list of things you want to be able to do better be to serve and glorify Christ. See, there's so many things that tug on our hearts so that we don't give our lives to the Lord Jesus in service and in worship. And the problem with those things is that when we love comfort and when we love acceptance and when we love leisure, it means that we love the Lord Jesus so little because you cannot have two masters. You will end up serving the one and hating the other. That's what Jesus told us. We live for those things, leisure and acceptance and comfort and wealth, when we find Jesus not to be enough, when we don't think Jesus is more worthy than those things. Christian, you need to stop being afraid 
that if you actually give everything to follow Christ, that you will lose out. The Lord Jesus said in the Gospels that anything you give up for his sake and for the sake of the gospel will be returned to you a hundredfold in this life and the life to come. What does that look like? Our prosperity gospel preaching friends, they say it looks like money in the checking account. That's not true. Whatever you give up to follow Christ, he will replace a hundredfold with himself. And if he is in your heart greater than all, then he's enough. Then that's enough. And so life's no longer about being accepted by the world. It's no longer about pursuing a career. It's no longer about leisure. It's about Christ and him crucified. And he is of infinitely more worth than riches. If you keep allowing these things of status and wealth and comfort, I think those are probably the triumvirate of things that we struggle with here. If you keep allowing them to grip your heart, and if I keep allowing them to grip my heart, we will find that Jesus holds less and less appeal to us. If you really wish to see and enjoy the beauty and wonder of Jesus Christ, then you must and I must take all these earthly distractions which will soon pass away and set them aside and seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. So what is it, beloved? What is it that captivates your attention and occupies your time and uses your resources? Is it that unholy trinity of things we talked about? Of the idols of the heart? Is it the world, the flesh, and the devil telling you that if you have just a bit more financial security, then life will be good? If you had just a bit more free time, life would be good? What is it? If it's anything less than the Lord Jesus, you've not only missed the point of this passage, then frankly, you've missed the point of life. You exist, as the Shorter Catechism says, to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That's the point. Do you get the point? How do we apply this text? First, looking at Melchizedek here teaches us a great lesson about reading the Bible. We always need to read the Bible Christocentrically. See, if, if you read Melchizedek and it all you want to figure out is who Melchizedek is, you've read the Bible wrong. Reading the Bible Christocentrically means you read about Melchizedek and try to understand more about the glory of Christ. We need at every turn to read the scriptures all about Christ from Genesis to Revelation. They teach about him. And so no matter what passage you're reading, your duty is to connect the dots between that passage and the Lord Jesus. He's always the point. Second, there's a really important point in here about tithing. Abraham tithed. He gave one-tenth of the spoils of war to Melchizedek. Sometimes people say, 
Tithing is all Old Testament. It's all Old Covenant. It was about the Mosaic law that tithing mattered. But in the New Covenant, they'll say, it's not about that. It's not about a set amount. Just give whatever you want to. But if we understand that Melchizedek preceded the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law, and he was a priest, and Abraham tithed to him, Abraham is teaching us that the tithe is permanent until, at least until Christ returns. I don't understand how it'll work in heaven. But the tithe did not pass away with the new covenant. And and so, if you've used that as an excuse, that tithing is an Old Testament thing, read about Melchizedek. Read this passage. It's foreshadowing the Christian life as we're to tithe as well. Third, finally, I want to plead with you not to miss the warning that we've looked at in Hebrews over the last few weeks. The warning has been this. There's such a thing as false faith, and it looks a lot like real faith. It has all the same externals, knowing the right answers, going through the motions, but it's not real faith. It's not marked by love for Christ and repentance from sin and putting sin to death and growing in sanctification. That's real faith. And so this false faith that we've been seeing, it's deceptive. And I want to plead with you not to be deceived by it. That just because you have the outward trappings of faith does not mean you're trusting in the Lord Jesus. Oh, beloved, would you realize that? That real faith, real Christianity is marked by faith and repentance. And I, I had a moment last Sunday evening as Pastor Walton was reading from Zechariah 1 preached a wonderful sermon from Zechariah 1, but it was just in the reading of the word. The reading of the word is a means of grace. And as he read it, it it struck me with a note of concern. The Lord was speaking through Zechariah, and he says in Zechariah 1, 3, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. That's good news. But then he says, do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out, return from your evil ways and return from your evil deeds. But he says this, but they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. In a sense, on their tombstones would be written these words, they did not hear or pay attention to me. Christian, let me ask you, we've been looking at Hebrews, we've been looking at these hard warning passages for weeks and weeks, and I'm a little bit tentative, I'm a little bit cautious to move on, because I wonder, have we heard the point? Have you turned from sin and turned to the Lord Jesus? Or do you continue in something that looks like faith but isn't real faith? God has spoken to you. It's time to grow up in the faith. It's time to put away foolish childish things and follow Christ wholeheartedly. And so let me ask you, beloved, will that be said of you one day? He did not hear or pay attention to me. Would God say that to you, to us as church? May it not be so. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, our God, we praise you for your word. 
that it contains everything we need for life and godliness. And we confess we don't have all the answers. And there are certainly things that I or we may misunderstand about Melchizedek. But what we do not understand is, misunderstand is the glory of Jesus Christ, that he alone is worthy of our attention. He's al- he alone is worthy of our, our worship. He, he alone is worthy of our time and our resources. And so, Father, I pray that you would convict and convince our hearts that Jesus is greater than all. Jesus alone is worthy of our time and our attention and our affections. 